Okay, turn with me to Matthew chapter 7, and we will begin looking at verses 7 to 12 in our ongoing study. Let me read the text first, and then we will begin. Jesus says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he... He will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. For this is the law and the prophets. Now the key verse in this passage is the first half of verse 12. In everything, therefore, treat people in the same way you want them to treat you. The rest of this passage is just a commentary on that great truth. Uh, this is what is known as the golden rule. Uh, one Bible teacher referred to it as the Mount Everest of ethics. Uh, the great Bible scholar Alfred Edersheim said of this statement, it is the closest approach to absolute love of which human nature is capable. And Bishop J.C. Ryle wrote, This truth settles a hundred different points. It prevents the necessity of laying down endless little rules for our conduct in specific cases. Now, as a side note, do you know how it came to be known as the Golden Rule? It seems that the Roman Emperor Alexander Severus, uh, who was A.D. 222 to 235, he was not a believer not a Christian, but reportedly he was so impressed by the comprehensiveness of this statement uh, by Jesus as a guide to good living that he had it inscribed in gold on the wall of his chamber. And thus it became known as the golden rule. Uh, now I believe there are a lot of ethical things the world can do. And every now and then they might even hit on this one. But the fullness of all that this ethical standard really means is only possible for a believer because there is no capacity within the life of an unbeliever to function in this manner as an ongoing pattern. Now, as we've been studying the book of Matthew, we have been learning uh, that the Christian perspective is that we're a kingdom and God is our king. Uh, we live in a monarchy. God is a reigning, ruling, sovereign king, and we are the subjects of his kingdom. But that is not the only metaphor. Matthew also points out the fact, and so does Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, that we are also a family. Uh, the kingdom concept deals with the rule, and the family concept deals with relationship. And as we come to this particular section of the Sermon on the Mount, we're dealing with relationships. Uh, we're dealing with our relationships to other people. That's the subject of verses 1 through 12. Uh, as John Stott has well said, Christian counterculture is not an individual value system and lifestyle. It's a community affair. It involves relationships. So we are a family. 
In fact, Ephesians 2.19 tells us that we are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Uh, the Apostle John repeatedly says in 1 John that we are the children of God. Jesus has already informed us very clearly that God is our Father who is in heaven. And so we see not only the kingdom concept in Matthew, but within the rule and the reign of the kingdom, there is a relationship of a father to his children, and that has some very important ramifications. In fact, two of the greatest, strongest elements of Christian truth are that God is our father and that Christians are our brothers and sisters. Those are the two essential truths of Christianity. How can I say that? Because Jesus said that. In Matthew 22, 36 to 40, we read that one of the scribes asked him, Teacher, what's the greatest commandment of the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then this in verse 40. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Jesus said you can sum up all biblical revelation, all divine truth, and boil it down to the reality of two things, your relationship with the Father and your relationship with other believers. We're a family. God is our Father. Christians are our brothers and sisters. Now, we've already discussed the fact of God is our Father when we studied the model prayer in chapter 6. Uh, we've already seen how Jesus explained the fatherhood of God and gave it a new dimension in comprehension and understanding. Uh, the term father was always his favorite term for the Lord God. He spoke of him as his father. And now we've come to the second element of that great summation of all the law, the love of one another. This is the second great element. And I would remind you that you can't have the second unless you have the first. Unless you are rightly related to God, it is impossible to fulfill this ethical standard in verse 12. Uh, now this is consistent with the Old Testament. The summation of the law of God in the Old Testament is clear. In Deuteronomy 6.5, you have the first part. It says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And in Leviticus 19.18, you have the second part. You shall love the Lord, uh, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So repeatedly in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, God, God's commands for us are for us to have a right relationship with him as a father and a right relationship to others as brothers and sisters in the faith. Those are the salient features of Christian truth. In fact, at the end of verse 12, what does it say there? This, for this is the law and the prophets. Uh, in other words, the whole law, as it relates to human relationships in this world, can be summed up by love your neighbor as yourself. Or another way to, do, to say it is do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's just another way to say the same thing. We are to love one another. Since God is our loving, caring Father, and when that vertical relationship is right, then the horizontal relationship 
follows in its wake. Now let me add another note about the text. This particular section, verses 1 to 12, is the climax of the main theme of the whole Sermon on the Mount. The theme is to present the standards for living in the kingdom. Jesus has given the standards related to self, to morality, to religion, to money, and to possessions. And now he concludes with the standards relating to human relationships, which he began in verses 1 to 6. John MacArthur has referred to the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus' manifesto for living in his kingdom. I think that's an accurate description because this sermon is so comprehensive. <clears throat> it deals not only with our relationship to God <clears throat> and how we treat his word, but also with our heart attitudes toward others in terms of murder, adultery, divorce, vow-making, revenge on our enemies. Uh, it deals with people in the family, uh, such as here in these verses, and with people outside the family, such as the salt and light passage in chapter 5. It deals with how we treat others and perceive them, not criticizing, judging, and condemning them. And it deals with being people who are humble and self-examining. All of the various dimensions of Christian living in Christ's kingdom are discussed in this masterpiece of a sermon. Uh, this sermon is the marvelous result of the mind of Christ. Uh, he alone could so simplify the vast area of human relationships. And throughout this sermon, Jesus is contrasting his standard with the standard of the day, which was basically the standard of the scribes and the Pharisees. And they were wrong on every one of them. Uh, they were wrong about self. They were wrong about the world. They were wrong about the law of God. They were wrong about morality. They were wrong about religion. They were wrong about money. They were wrong about possessions. And they were definitely wrong about human relationships. They were self-righteous, egotistical, proud bigots who set themselves up in elevated positions and looked down their noses at everyone else. They were condescending and condemning to everyone around them. They had violated the basic standard of human relationships, which the Lord reiterates right here. And the whole point that you need to see is that all throughout this sermon, Jesus is making the effort to drive them to the point of desperation where they will say, we're unqualified to be in God's kingdom. And when they come to that point, when they begin to respond the right way, that's what he's after. In other words, you have to hear the bad news before you hear the good news. And it is that after, his, after this passage in verse 13 that he gives them the invitation. He says, I've shown you where you are. You're on the broad road to destruction. You can keep going down that broad roadway or you can enter the kingdom through the narrow gate. And that is the invitation that follows the main theme of the passage. So we come then to this area of human relationships, of loving our neighbor as ourselves. Now, 
Loving someone has two sides, doesn't it? A negative side and a positive side. Uh, loving someone means you don't do certain things to them, uh, but you do do other things for them and to them. You see, love is more than not doing something. Uh, if someone comes to you and says, do you love me? And you say to them, well, I never told you I didn't, did I? That doesn't mean you love them. I mean, the opposite, the, the absence of something doesn't constitute love. Love is not only not doing some things, it is doing other things. And that's why after Jesus presented the negative side in verses 1 to 6, he balances it out by presenting the positive side in verses 7 to 12. And in this passage, Jesus gives us three reasons for obeying the command to love others as ourselves. They are, one, God's promise demands it, two, God's pattern demands it, and three, God's purpose demands it. So let's start with the first one, God's promise demands it. Let's look at, find it in verses 7 and 8. It says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Here is one of the Lord's greatest and most comprehensive promises to those who belong to him. Uh, those who are his children and citizens of his kingdom. And in light of this great promise, we can feel free to fully love others and totally sacrifice for them because our Heavenly Father sets the example in his generosity to us and promises that we have access to his eternal and unlimited treasure to meet our own needs as well as theirs. This is the perfect bridge between the negative teaching about a critical spirit and the positive teaching of the golden rule. You see that word, therefore, in verse 12, down in verse 12? If we're going to see why we can treat others the same way we want to be treated, we have to back up and see what the therefore is there for. And that brings us back to these verses, 7 and 8, where we see that we can do for others what we want done for ourselves without fear of depleting the divine resources and having nothing left because our Lord is always willing to give to his children. You see, God promises that whatever we ask and seek and knock for, we're going to receive. So here's the heart of the matter. We can feel free to give to others and do for others and to sacrifice for others and to love others because we can be confident that even in giving up all we have to someone else, we have an ultimate and eternal resource to replenish our own needs. The promise of God to us is that what we ask for and seek for and knock for will be given to us, frees us up to bestow anything and everything we have on those who have needs. We can do for others what we would do for ourselves without fear of having nothing left because all we have to do is turn to our loving Father who gives us food for every day and takes care of us in every way and will never do without that which we need. 
Now that's a far cry from the way we live, isn't it? You better believe it. We're so selfish and possessive. But let's look at this passage specifically. Now some people have been confused about the order of this, this chapter, but I think this is a masterful presentation. People say, well, why didn't Jesus give the principle of verse 12 and then explain it by giving us verses 1 to 11 after? Well, let me explain why. The negative principle of human relations in verses 1 to 5 is what? What is it? Do not judge, right? Yeah. Don't be a condescending, arrogant critic of others. Now, the danger of that is when we avoid that kind of behavior, we might swing too far the other way and become gullible and vulnerable. Do verses 1 to 5 mean that we're not supposed to reprove and rebu rebuke a brother in sin? No. Does it mean we're not supposed to discriminate and discern false prophets, false teachers, apostates? No. Notice in verse 5 that it says that even though we're not to judge, we're to be able to see clearly so as to forcibly throw a speck out of our brother's eye. We have to go to fellow believers and see the sin in their life and confront it and do all we can to help them be restored. And then in verse 6, he says, we have to be careful we don't give holy things to dogs and don't throw pearls to hogs. Now you say, well, if we don't judge others, how are we going to know about the sin in our brother's eyes? We've got to be discriminating. Or how can we discern the sin in a believer's heart? Or how do we know a hog and a dog when we meet one? How do we know an apostate? You know, we all want a nice little formula, don't we? Uh, we all want a nice little checklist that we can just run down and then total up the check marks and say, yep, he's in sin. Or, yep, he's a heretical hog. But do you know what the answer is? Verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find Knock, and it will be open to you. Listen, who is able to judge? Who's able to discern? Who's able to know when you've got somebody that you don't want to throw your pearls to? Who's able to discern when you have somebody out there that you don't want to give holy things to because you know they'll trample it under their feet? Who is it that's able to see sin in a believer's life? It's God and God alone who has that kind of discernment. And so if you want to have it, there's no little formula that you're going to use. There's no little rule book, no checklist. The only place you can go for that information is down on your knees. You, you see what it's saying there? You don't, you know, I don't know the answer to that, but I know that James 1.5 says, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, it'll be given to him. God's wisdom is among our greatest needs. We cannot be discerning and discriminating without divine counsel from our Heavenly Father. And the primary means for achieving such wisdom is petitioning prayer. Listen, if all God wanted was for us to go through a bunch of formulas 
and a bunch of rules or some kind of checklist, he would have given us a hip pocket version of a rule book and said, okay, you're on your own. But that isn't what he wants. What he wants is a relationship. And so he gives us enough truth so that we're responsible and enough mystery so that we're dependent upon him. Situations keep changing and vary greatly from age to age and person to person. To give specific rules for every circumstance would require a great library of volumes of material. But instead, he gave us his inerrant, sufficient, inspired word codified in 66 books. And so ever and always in dealing with spiritual issues, we are to go to the word of God. Some things he spells out very specifically that are sinful, but other things he only gives us principles that we can draw out. But once we know the principle, then we have to depend upon his wisdom. And the only way that we determine how to apply those principles in specific situations is to be continuously talking to him in prayer. And that's what keeps our relationship with him warm. If we had all the answers in our hip pocket, our relationship with him would suffer because all we would have to do is just pull out the rule book, check what he said, and then take action. We wouldn't have to depend upon him. And so we have to ask and seek and knock, and he reveals answers to us. And I believe that's the bridge that the Holy Spirit would have us understand between verses 1 to 6 and verse 7. It helps us know how to get that speck out of a brother's eye. How to be careful about giving holy things to dogs and casting pearls before swine. And so that's how this text reaches back. And here Jesus says, in effect, if you want wisdom to know how to help a sinning brother, and how to discern falsehood and apostasy, go to your heavenly Father. Ask and seek and knock at the doors of heaven, and you will receive, and you'll find, and you'll have the door opened. Now, contrary to some popular interpretations, verses 7 and 8 are not a blank check for just anyone to present to God for his endorsement. Some people think they can just say to God, here's my blank check, Lord, just fill in the amount because Jesus has already signed it there right in verses 7 and 8. He's just, he's promised, so just, Lord, just unload the bank of heaven and pour it out on me. And then there are people who say, well, the Bible says, verse 8, Everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and him who knocks, it'll be open. And they just rip that little verse out of its context and say, well, all you got to do is ask. Now, wait a minute, because there's some other conditions that we need to understand. First, this statement is only valid if you're a child of God. Otherwise, you have no relationship to him. He's not bound to answer you. Now, remember, there was undoubtedly a large mass of unbelievers, including some scribes and Pharisees, sitting on the side of that hill in Galilee that day when Jesus said these words. So how do 
we explain how his words did not apply to them. Because all throughout this sermon, whenever he spoke about them, he addressed them in the third person as if they were not the direct target of his words. Instead, if you go back to chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, you find that he was directly teaching his disciples. It was they who were the targets of his teaching. And so when you read that word, everyone, in verse 8, it refers to everyone who was one of his true children. The, the two overriding relationships that Matthew's gospel focuses on are those of God's kingdom and God's family. The kingdom concept deals with his rule and the family concept deals with relationship. The two greatest realities of Christian truth are that God is our father and that Christians are our brothers. Believers are the family of God. They are the children to whom he listens. Second, second condition, you have to be living in obedience. You remember what Peter said? He gave husbands instructions about living with their wives in an understanding way as someone weaker since she is a woman and show her the honor of, as a fellow heir of the grace of life, 1 Peter 3, 7. And why are men to live in such a way with their wives? What does he say? so that your prayers will not be hindered, right? Now, guys, don't try to say, well, that means my obedience to the Lord is limited to my relationship with my wife. How I live the rest of my life won't hinder my prayers. That's what we call scripture twisting. If you're trying to limit the application of scripture to the rest of your life, you've really missed the point. And frankly, you make me wonder if you're really a believer. But if you want to try that interpretation with what Peter said there, just listen to what John said in 1 John 3, 22. And whatever we ask, we receive from him. Why, John? Because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. It's kind of hard to get around that one. John doesn't use words that you can limit to your relationship with your wife. He just straight up ties obedience to answered prayer. <clears throat> when you're not obeying, you're not receiving either. So there are conditions. One, be a child of God. Two, be an obedient child of God. And then number three, be a selfless child of God. Be a selfless child of God. You have to have a totally selfless motive in asking. If you're asking in order to gain benefits for yourself, forget it. James 4.3, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. All you want to do is fulfill your own desires. And then finally, number four, you have to be a submissive child of God. A submissive child of God. You have to submit it all to his will. 1 John 5, 14 and 15. This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, 
he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from him. Now, what is the will of God? It's that in everything we do, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, that we do it all for his glory, right? So it's not a blank check. It's only when the conditions are right. You're his child. You're his obedient child. You're his selfless child. And you ask according to his will in order that he can be glorified. Then he'll do it. In fact, you should be very glad that this is not a blank check <clears throat> that Jesus is promising here. You know that? You ought to be glad. <laughs> Professor Howard Hendricks, or as he was known at Dallas Theological Seminary as Prof. Hendricks, or just Prof., once said that when he was a young single man, there were certain mothers who set their hopes on him on behalf of their daughters. And one mother even said to him, Howard, I just want you to know that I'm praying you'll become my son-in-law. <clears throat> and later, Prof. Hendricks commented about that incident. Have you ever thanked God for unanswered prayer? <laughs> I, I know I'm glad the Lord hasn't answered all the ridiculous prayers that I and others have prayed. Now, on the other hand, isn't it wonderful that he has always answered your and my persistent prayers for spiritual growth. There's something else I want to point out to you here, and that's that each of these three verbs, ask, seek, and knock, are all present active imperatives. In other words, they are commands to keep continually, keep on continually asking, can keep on continually seeking, keep on continually knocking. He is commanding perseverance and constancy. And they, they also have another little thought in them. See, asking is a very simple activity, isn't it? A child does that, and they do it constantly. But there's no real involvement in it. There's no participation in it. You just ask. Seeking is stronger than just asking. There's participation in it. At the very least, you're looking around with your eyes. But in knocking, you're just banging away. There's greater participation so that even though we know everything comes from the Lord, there is an assumption that we are actively, persistently, perhaps even aggressively involved in its fulfillment. I mean, I don't just sit at my desk in front of my computer and pray, Lord, I want to teach a great lesson on Sunday. Please, I ask you, give me a great lesson. No, I pray and ask the Lord for understanding of the text. And then I seek by studying it, cross-referencing throughout the Word of God, consulting my original language reference books, and reading what various Bible scholars have written about the particular passage. 
And when I run into a difficult verse or passage to understand, I begin knocking on heaven's door, praying, <clears throat> saying, Lord, I'm struggling with this passage. Even the great men of God have differing opinions as to what it means. So please help me understand it. My point is that God is the only one who can produce a good lesson through me. But at the same time, I've got to be involved in it. I can't slack off. I can't just let go and let God as some have taught. And so there's a sense in which we are really involved, even in our own prayers. Why does God want us to persevere? It's not because we have to bang away in order to get God to act, but because the more we're involved in the process, the deeper our relationship with him becomes. The deeper and richer and more meaningful our communion becomes with him. Because God doesn't want us to carry a hip pocket checklist. No, he wants us to have a vital relationship with him. And he does the kind of things that throws us into that relationship in a wholesale fashion. Now, there is so much here in terms of how we interpret what Jesus has said and how we apply it that I want to remind you not to twist this passage to fit your own agenda. Remember the context in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. Bible scholar Donald Carson points out that we need to remember to put these verses in their context in the Sermon on the Mount. And he explains this persistence in prayer this way. Let me read this quote. Quote, The kingdom of heaven requires poverty of spirit, purity of heart, truth, compassion, a non-retaliatory spirit, a life of integrity, and we lack all of these things. Then let us ask for them. Are you holy? as meek, as truthful, as loving, as pure, as obedient to God as you would like to be, then ask him for grace that these virtues may multiply in your life. Such asking, when sincere and humble, is already a step of repentance and faith, for it is an acknowledgment that the virtues the kingdom requires you, requires you do not possess, and that these same virtues only God can give. Moreover, I suspect that this asking, seeking, and knocking has a total package as its proper object. It does not seek holiness, but spurn obedience. It does not seek obedience, but hedge, on, hedge when it comes to purity. It is a wholehearted pursuit of the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And this pursuit is stamped by stamina. It is persistent asking, seeking, and knocking, end quote. Now, does Dr. Carson mean that we can never pray for more mundane matters, such as a job or financial provision or whether or not we ought to move or buy a new house or a new car? No, most certainly not. But we must not forget that when Jesus gave this instruction, it fit into a certain context. And we must use that context when we interpret the text. And as we said, these verses are the positive side of what Jesus taught about human relationships. The negative side was do not judge. The positive side is, Lord, give me understanding of how to relate to my brother and sister in Christ. 
help me relate to my unsaved neighbor in such a way that I may have an opportunity to share the gospel with them. And when you persistently pray that God will make you more like Christ as seen in the Beatitudes, all of your issues about human relationships will be solved as the Lord gives you what you're asking for. But you can feel free to pray with intensity about those mundane matters also. And whatever his, of his will we know to do, we should be doing. If we're asking the Lord to find us a new job, we should be looking for a job. If we're out of food, we should be trying to earn money to buy it. If we want help in confronting a Christian brother or sister about sin, we should be trying to find out all we can about the situation and all of what God's word has to say about the subject. It's not faith. It's presumption to ask the Lord to provide more when we're not already faithfully using what he's already given to us. Well, that brings us to the end of the first point. But before I begin the next point, the next principle, let me pause and offer you an opportunity to ask questions or make comments. Because I think I'm pretty sure that some of you are sitting there saying, wow, that's not what I expected him to say about those ask and seek and knock. Any thoughts or questions? Yes. One thing that I realized the first time I read this was that the ask, seek, and knock are in the same order as the word ask. Oh, the letters. Help me memorize it. Only in English. <laughs> I'm certain of that. Yes. Only in English is, an, is that an acronym. Uh, but uh, if it helps you remember them, great. I wish I were successful in other verses. <laughs> <laughs> Anything? Else? Yes. I just to ask because uh, uh, for the fourth week, it's being a child, a obedient child, selfless child, and submissive child. What is the heading over that exact heading over? That was just the conditions upon which Jesus does what he says, answers, you know, these, this prayer, the asking, seeking, and knocking. Those are the conditions for his answering those. Okay? Anything else? Okay, let's look at the next point, the second point. God's pattern demands it. Verses 9 to 11. Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Here Jesus is giving an illustration of how gracious and kind God is in giving to his children. First, he asks the question, what kind of guy is going to give his son a stone if his son asks him for bread? Is, is that man a loving father? Of course not. You see, in those days, they made loaves of bread that were small things, kind of like a biscuit or even a, uh, if it was without leaven, it looked like a little pancake. And when they finished cooking it, it would often look like those smooth limestone rocks that are common in Israel, particularly around the shore of the lakes and there. And 
So Jesus' question is whether or not they thought a loving father would deceive his own son by giving him a stone rather than a loaf of bread. And the obvious answer is no. A loving father would not do such a thing. In fact, the way this sentence is structured in the Greek language presupposes a negative answer. Well, what about this? Verse 10. Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? Now, the idea here is not that the father would give his son a living poisonous snake that might bite him and kill him. Rather, this has to do with clean and unclean foods. Under the law, a fish was a clean animal and could be eaten. But a snake was unclean, according to Leviticus 11.42. And likewise, an eel, which looks like a snake, was unclean, according to Leviticus 11. 10 to 12. So they could not be eaten. Snakes and eels could not be eaten. And the, but the cooked flesh of both snakes and eels just looks just like flesh, uh, fish flesh. Okay? So someone who didn't realize what he was being given might mistakenly eat food that would cause him to be ceremonially defiled and unclean. So Jesus' point here is that if a son asked for fish to eat, would a loving father cook a snake or an eel and give that to him to eat and thus purposely make his own son violate the law of God? No, of course he wouldn't. No loving Jewish father would purposely deceive and defile his son. Now over in Luke's parallel account in Luke 11, he records that Jesus asked another question, which is, or if he asked for an egg, he'll not give him a scorpion, will he? That's in Luke, Luke 11, 12. Now, in the previous questions, Jesus made the point that a loving father won't deceive his son and he won't defile his son. Now he makes the point that a loving father won't destroy his son. Uh, you see, there are at least eight different types of scorpions in the Middle East. Uh, the largest of which is the thickness of your finger and about five or six inches long. Uh, and the sting of those scorpions is so bad that it's often fatal for children and immunocompromised adults. Uh, and certain scorpions breed in eggs and then they use the shell. Uh, they, they're known to... Uh, pierce an egg, eat what's inside, and then use the shell as their home. And uh, if someone picks up the egg and breaks it, the scorpion stings them. Uh, some Bible scholar, uh, scholars speak of the white scorpion in the Middle East, which when it is tail folded up resembles a small egg, and they, they say that's what Jesus is talking about. Well, I don't know precisely if any of those situations is precisely what Jesus is referring to, but his primary point is that no loving father is going to deceive his son by giving him something that will harm him, perhaps even kill him. No loving father would do that. Well, we, going back to our text then, <clears throat> in Matthew, we come to verse 11. 
And Jesus makes one of the greatest statements in the entire Bible on the fallen nature of man. Even when he does good things to his children, uh, he does not override his fallen uh, evil nature. He says, if then, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Notice that he says you're evil even when you do good things like giving good gifts to your children. Basic things like giving them food. If you, with an evil, vile, fallen, corrupt, sinful nature, do that much out of a sense of parental love, how much more will your heavenly Father, who is perfect goodness, perfect love, perfect kindness, give things to those who ask him? And if you look at Luke's account, you see that he equates the good that he gives with the Holy Spirit. Luke eleven thirteen says, How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The Holy Spirit is the very best thing that God can give anyone because that's the gift he gives to everyone who trusts Christ in saving faith. If God gives you the Holy Spirit, that means you are truly one of his children. And then he's promised to give you the other good things you need, if you will, but ask. The point is this. If evil, unregenerate, sinful fathers give their kids the basics of life, don't you think God will do that? Don't you think you can trust him to provide for you? And the idea that I see here is that God is the absolute giving father who gives to all what they need, knowing full well that they could never give back to him anything in kind or measure. And if, it's, if that's the way he is, then isn't the way we are, isn't that the way that we as his children should be toward others? How can we say we're his children and do less for others? But sadly, many of God's children seem to be under the delusion that their heavenly father extracts some sort of malicious glee out of watching his children squirm now and then. In their minds, he doesn't always answer their prayers just so that he can sort of get even for them for how they've mistreated him. Of course, they're not quite blasphemous enough to put it in those terms. But their prayer life reveals that they are not thoroughly convinced of God's goodness and the love that he has for them. They seem to think he has to answer their prayers in the way they have determined is best rather than the way that he has determined is best. But God isn't like other deities. He truly cares for those who are his own. Those who do not know the true God have no divine source to whom they can turn with assurance or trust. Most pagan gods are nothing more than larger than life, more powerful versions of the men who conceive them. Uh, the Greeks had their stories about the gods who answered men's prayers. Let me tell you one of them. Aurora was the goddess of the dawn. She fell in love with Tithonus, 
a young man who was human and thus mortal. Zeus, the king of the gods, promised Aurora that he would give her any gift she might choose for Tithonus. So she asked Zeus to grant that he would live forever. In other words, she wanted immortality for him so they could stay together forever. But she forgot to ask, Tithonus, uh, ask that Tithonus would remain young forever. And therefore, when Zeus granted her request, Tithonus was doomed to an eternity of perpetual aging without ever being able to die. Those are, that's typical of the capricious ways of the gods that men invent. The Greeks invented and believed in gods that played tricks on one another and who brought curses on mankind. Our God's not that way. We ask, he gives, and he gives what is best. And he never deceives, never defiles, and never destroys. He is our pattern, and if we follow his pattern, we will give to others out of love. But our problem is this. In our fallen flesh, we're evil. And even though we become Christians, we still have sin in us, don't we? Anybody here yet achieve sinless perfection? And the fight for selfishness dominates our lives. And so we need to be broken in our hearts so that we might be unselfish toward others. You see, the most naturally selfless relationship among human beings is that of parents with their children. We're more likely to sacrifice for our children, even up to the point of giving up our lives than for any other people in the world. And yet the greatest human parental love cannot compare to God's. The truth that Jesus proclaims here is that if imperfect and sinful human fathers so willingly and freely give their children the basics of life, God will infinitely outdo them in measure and in benefit. And that's why we read in Ephesians 1.3 that he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Well, that brings us finally to the last point, but you're going to have to wait until next week to hear that because our time is up. We will finish this next week and then move along into the next part of the, the sermon. Any uh, questions or comments on any of this before we close. Okay. Well, let's, uh, let me stop this.